It is so good to be with you this morning. My name is Kenan Vaughn. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors and elders here. And uh, if I haven't met you, then uh, give you my greetings, and I hope that I get to soon. It really is such a joy just to be together and to worship together. Amen? That was really sweet. I look forward to that time just of together uh, displaying our gratitude for the gospel through singing. I tell my boys every Sunday when sometimes they find themselves watching and listening, which is not altogether bad, but I always whisper in their ears, if you sing, it engages your heart. And boy, is that true. When we sing out praises to God, it just engages our heart in worship. And uh, that was really sweet. Praise God. Uh, We're going to continue here in our uh, series in Ephesians. Uh, We are in the section that is uh, moved from identity in chapters 1 and 2 to unity, which we're still in, in 2, 3, 4. There's an overlap there of unity and maturity, which we're also in, because uh, by the way we hold to the unity of the body and the bond of peace is a mark of our maturity. So we're talking about those things we must do for the sake of unity that are a display of maturity. And then we will uh, get to, eventually and shortly, warfare. So that's where we are, and this morning's text will be in chapter 4, verses 25 through chapter 5, verse 2. If you're able to stand once more for the reading of God's Word, I'd invite you to do so. It's the very Word of God. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God." Is the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, thank you for these moments where we just uh, quiet our minds and our hearts, and we gather around your word to hear from you. Lord, though I be a messenger of your word this morning, the power of the gospel is in your word. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would press these, your words, deep into our hearts, that we would not merely be hearers of the word this morning, that we would be doers of the word. These are practical uh, struggles that we each, even as Christians, have every day to live holy and righteous um, as you've created us and recreated us to be. And such practical and tangible ways we put on display the gospel. And so may we endeavor towards these ends and By the power of your spirit, will you make our endeavoring fruitful? So I pray this morning as I speak, I would decrease. I must, Lord Jesus, through this teaching of your good word, you must increase. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this is 
in many ways, a continuation. We start in 25 with the word therefore. We're continuing from uh, where we ended last week. If you remember, when we uh, met last week and we were in verses 17 through 24, we were talking about not living as we used to live, which was as all non-believers live, because when you're in the dark and the lights aren't on, you, you live how you live, instinctively, by the impulses of the flesh, which are common to human nature. We all know what it is to live by the cravings of the flesh, and unless or until God turns the lights on, our thinking is futile, and our hearts are callous to God, and we live lives that are increasingly towards sensuality, because we're searching for something to satisfy. That's just what man does and has always done. Unless God intervenes supernaturally, miraculously, um, brings a godly sorrow over our sin, chastens us to the point of repentance, illumines us to the truth of Christ, redeems us, and begins to sanctify us in his image for his purposes. The lights have come on. Paul's saying, hey, don't live as you once lived when you've been awakened to the truth. And he says, in way of action, you got to actively be putting off the old self, meaning Unfortunately, the moment we get saved, all of those fleshly impulses that are sinful towards selfishness, um, that are um, uh, whispered to us or tempted uh, on us by the world we live in and culture and the wisdom of culture around us, which is no wisdom of all, uh, by Satan, the devil, the prince of the power of this world, the one pulling the current of the river that we are swimming, and by our own flesh that is not yet dead. The power of sin is broken, but there's still the... uh, fleshly impulses towards sin. Until we lay down this flesh and received a glorified body, that's going to be our struggle. And unfortunately, it is a struggle. Uh, And yet that struggle affords us the opportunity to learn to depend on God and learn that the power of the Holy Spirit brings life and to die to ourselves so that Christ be formed and be alive in us. And these verses become true. Well, that's an active, present, infinitive, ongoing effort to put off the old self. And we talked about that passive renewing of your minds is a be surrendered to the Spirit of God who works on us through the truth of God's Word. Surrender yourself to this Word. Submit yourself to this Word. That's what it is to be renewed and transformed in your mind. It's through and by the power of His Word. And then active tense again, present infinitive, put on the new self actively striving towards holiness and righteousness by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. This is the life of the Christian. Not that we toil away at because we must, but that we live delightfully in response to what Christ has done for us, who he is, what he has done, and the joy of being in right relationship with him. We know tastes of it. We want a greater experience. We want, we want to drink from the well of the life that is Christ. And so Paul says, this is how you do it. You cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and you'll find the ever-increasing degree of joy and delight in Christ. Amen? So then we come to the 25, therefore. So he's going to dig a little bit here. He's going to get a little bit into your business this morning. He's going to press in. He's going from generalization, put off the old, put on the new, to particularization. Here's how you got to do that. Here's what we actually got to deal with. When when I talked about last week, Jesus saying uh, to Lazarus, take off the grave clothes, set him free. Well, what do some of those grave clothes look like? What does some of that death smell like? Well, Paul's going to address some things that are common to human nature. Therefore, they're common to you and I. And again, the moment we got saved, 
We didn't uh, quit the ability to do these things. We'd better watch out. So Paul says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So he gives the negative, the positive, and the why. That's kind of going to be a pattern over the next seven verses, I've noticed. Um, Don't speak falsehood. Do speak truth because we're members of one body. So he's talking about not lying. He's talking about being a truth teller. Uh, at the very core of uh, our sin nature is, is a tendency, an impulse to lie when it is advantageous for us to do so. When we would look bad at telling the truth or be ashamed for someone to know the truth. Maybe it's about something in our personal life. Maybe it's about something we said or did uh, or, or something we haven't done or uh, that we wish we'd done. Whatever it is, we just have a tendency to create a fantasy world for others to think of us more highly than they ought. That's a human impulse. I struggle with it, and I hope that you can empathize. Paul says, don't do that. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Therefore, you don't have to tell lies that make you bigger and minimize the gospel. Don't speak falsehood to one another. Be truthful. It makes much of Christ and the gospel and the very power that binds us together as a community when you tell the truth. When you live in authentic relationship with one another, uh, Zechariah 8 is not a very well-known uh, or studied passage, not a very studied book in our Old Testament. It's kind of overlooked, but Zechariah looks forward to a time when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom on earth. He said, you know what will mark, distinguishing mark of the kingdom of Christ when established on this earth? When he reigns in Jerusalem, it says Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. Distinguishing Mark, those who live under the physical reign of Christ will not speak in falsehood to one another. And they will be truthful. Do you know what the church is meant to be today? As we anticipate that day, we're meant to be a foreshadowing. We're literally meant to be a city on a hill where the world can say, you know what's distinct about the people of God? They tell the truth, even when it's to their disadvantage. Even when it brings... Uh, something shameful about them uh, out publicly. Uh, even when it harms them or even when they lose out on the game they might have had, they just distinct, like you can trust them because even if, to their own injury, they will tell the truth. You can trust. They're a foretaste of the coming kingdom. That's what we're meant to be. Uh, when I was in high school, I went to a local high school that has an honor code, has an honor council. It's one of the things I uh, appreciated the most about this high school experience. Because even in our little pagan lost ways, like there was, there was this thing was placed before us that was honorable. And I remember as a high school, it was kind of a thing like everybody's supposed to be bought in. We're all supposed to tell the truth. We're all supposed to not cheat. We're all supposed to not steal. One of the things that this high school did was the teachers would uh, leave the classroom when they gave tests. And part of that was to deepen the idea that you're on your honor. And if you don't have honor, you've got nothing. You can ace this test through cheating, but you've got nothing of value. And so what was built into us was better to fail and have my honor than to cheat and have no honor. And uh, I remember uh, one of the great honors of my young life was the student body nominated me to run for the honor council president, and I had to give a speech. 
You know what I did this morning? I don't recommend this, by the way. Uh, I keep in a lockbox, you know, certain mementos of life, and that speech is one of them. I was a senior in high school. I was 17. Uh, I was... uh, 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 I didn't know what I didn't know. It was the first time I had ever spoken in public in my life. It, it didn't look anything like this looks, I promise. Not that this looks necessarily good, but I was a nervous wreck. Um, I love it. I've got my notebook paper. I wrote six pages, double-spaced, and uh, the pages are now yellow. Isn't that cool? They were once white. It's been, it's been a while. But they're so soft, and I read my speech this morning just, just thinking about this, and uh, Boy, it's humbling to read things you write when you're 17. <laughs> so I almost cringe. I thought, I said, that's what I said? That's the whole student body? But, uh, but you know what I appealed to in this speech? I said, you know, we have a, um, a student handbook. And our handbook says that we're bound by core values of truth and honor. And it says we're bound by these core values of truth and honor so that we can put on display to the community what it looks like to be a virtuous community, to display nobility for all to see. Now, can I tell you what? There's honor in that. I read the words this morning, and I was somewhat moved. But can I tell you the way that that's meant to move even a secular institution towards honor for the sake of truth and and, uh, honor? to put on display virtue, we are members of a body, not just a secular institution of higher education. We are members of the body of Christ. We have a handbook, the word of God. We're bound together by the blood of Jesus Christ to put on display the gospel. Uh, I wish I had tethered that in back then. I didn't know what I didn't know, but I do now. Honor and truth are worth pursuing, but not merely so we can display what nobility looks like, but we can display the power of the gospel. Well, Paul says, put away your falsehood. Put on truth because you're members of the body of Christ. Quick sermon within a sermon. Uh, as, a, as, a, as one who knows what it is to lie, I can tell you this from my own experience. If you're, if you're lying, what happens in your life? You tell a lie, you kind of know you told it, maybe you wish you didn't, maybe you have immediate guilt. Then what happens is you begin to live with anxiety. You're anxious. Why are you anxious? Well, you're worried you might be find, found out. And when you live in anxiety, it strips you of your boldness. This is actually biblical. The, one of the uh, uh, verses in the Bible, the Bible says that um, the righteous uh, are as bold as lions. I love this. But but the wicked flee when no one's pursuing. That's what a liar does. Cowers away from your witness in Christ even when there's no one pursuing. Paul says our boldness comes from our conscience being clean before God. So he says in 2 Corinthians, when your conscience is not clean because you know that you're actively a liar, then you have no boldness. So Satan literally sidelines you and disqualifies you in ministry because you won't tell the truth because of whatever the truth might cost you. Are you with me? Uh, We're to be a truth-telling community. By the way, some of you may be reminded throughout every verse of the sermon, there's awkward, practical, applicative opportunity for repentance. You may be reminded of a time you haven't told the truth recently. 
with, her, with, with your wife or your, your children or in a business deal or with a neighbor, you may be, that may come to mind. I would, I, would, I would exhort you, make a note, deal with it. Go and say, hey, I, told a, I, I spoke falsely when I said this. I want to clear this up and speak truthfully. I did that because I wanted you to think higher of me than you ought. I'm doing this because I want you to think of Jesus as you should. Okay, that's an application point that's not fun. Paul's, that's why Paul's exhorting us towards this. You must, this is what it means. Hey, we spoke in generalities last week and we all nod our head. This is when it gets into our kitchen. It's like, golly, that, that hurts. That's hard. Yeah. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Be a people that puts on display the glory of Christ. Well, the next verse goes on to say, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So verse 26. So first, be angry. It's not saying that, uh, you know, encouraging anger. It's saying that you'll be angry. Anger in itself is not a sin. How do we know that? Throughout the Bible, we see times where God is angry. Okay? In his anger, he does not sin, but we often do. So there are things that uh, make us righteously angry. You see injustice, that ought to anger you. Um, You see racism, that ought to anger you. Uh, You see where good can be done that's not, or where harm that can be done is. There's things that we ought to be angry about. There's times we're offended that causes anger. The anger itself is not the problem. It's what we do in our anger that can be sinful. Paul says, when you're angry, don't sin. He says to give a qualifier, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So the trouble with anger is that if you let anger set in and you don't deal with it, it's like a weed in a garden. If you let that weed come up and you don't root it out, it gets rooted more deeply. It multiplies, more weeds come up. Before you know it, the fruitfulness of your garden is lost to weeds. That's what anger do. If you don't deal with it, if you don't surrender that to the Lord, let God deal with him or her, let God deal with the situation, or give yourself towards a noble end to that which has angered you, or ask forgiveness, or seek forgiveness in the situation where you're unreconciled because of anger, whatever it is, if you allow it to rest, angerness will always lead, as we will see, to bitterness. And yet again, if you want to meet somebody that is unhappy, you're going to meet somebody that's bitter. Bitterness always leads to unhappiness and unfruitfulness. And you know what this word is? It's an interesting word. He says, don't let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There's something that Paul hits on here. That's a pretty famous verse. It's in the context of if you let your anger simmer, you let the sun go down on it, which means you're not dealing, you're, you're, you're sulking in bitterness over something that angered you that you're not dealing with in a healthy way. Then here's what happens. The word for opportunity is the word topos. It means to give a seat to. You give a seat in the table of your heart to Satan. So whereas the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you, you now, by allowing anger to rest and root in your heart and begin to spring spring up weeds, you now invite Satan in to a seat at the table of your heart in your dealings. And you want to experience anxiety and turmoil uh, and discouragement and uh, self-esteem issues and all kinds of hell, then you give Satan a seat. By the way, you have anger in your marriage that you're not dealing with, you've literally brought a third party into that marriage. You've given a seat at the table of your marriage to Satan. 
You, your wife, and Satan trying to work things out. How do you think that's going to end? Oh, it's not going to end well. Uh, in your parenting, you give Satan a seat at the table. If you stew in anger towards your kids and their rebelliousness and callousness and all the things that you once were as a child and as a lost person. Uh, you give a seat to Satan in your business relationships. Relationships with your neighbors who are constantly infringing on their neighborhood covenant and your anger and you're stewing in anger. You bring Satan into the cove. And you bring Satan into the church. I tremble as I say that. The very house of God, whose people are meant to be pure, set aside, a city of truth. Don't give Satan a seat at the table in this house. How do you do that? You have anger towards a brother, towards a sister. You don't deal with it in a healthy way. You don't take responsibility for whatever wrong you had. You simmer in bitterness. Your bitterness leads to slander. We're going to get to a list here and see how the stairs go down when we get to verse 31. And all of a sudden, the enemy is present. And all of a sudden, there's division and discord and a falling out. Does this ever happen in the church? Wow. Well, if you want to know how it started, it started in somebody's heart that let the sun go down on their anger. And they gave Satan a topos. Paul says, be careful. You know, if this had been a house church in Ephesus with 23 people, this would have been tough. How about, how about a church in 21st century Memphis with 1,600 members? Every one of us is accountable to this standard. We don't have an excuse. Well, there's a lot of us. We can't help it. Every one of us is accountable to this standard and we're accountable to one another. That's what I told that group of students when I was 17 years old. We're to hold one another accountable. Now that's biblical. I took credit for it, but that's biblical. Okay. Uh, okay, he goes on to say, let the thief no longer steal, but rather him labor. Let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We often think of, I don't know, I, I don't want to presume upon you. I often get to this verse and I take a little breather. I was like, all right, lying's really hard. Being angry and not sinning is really hard. I'm not actively in a place where I'm, I'm, you know, going into the supermarket and coming out with something I shouldn't that I didn't pay for. Not my imprecise struggle. I shouldn't presume that on anybody else. Maybe that's just the Lord's uh, unmerited favor and blessing in my life. But, but let me say this. This isn't just talking about stealing from your local supermarket. What do we steal from God in terms of the stewardship of the resources he's given us for his glory? That he's redeemed and recreated us to do good works which God has prepared for us in advance. And let me just ask an incredibly humbling and convicting question. How much has God blessed you and I with? And you know what Genesis 12 says, and it follows throughout the rest of the New Testament, for the people of God, you are blessed to be a blessing. And you know what we often do with the blessing of God? Hoard it. Revel in it. Find ways to experience abundance and luxury and rest with complete uh, ignoring of those in plight around us. Now that shoe all of a sudden fits really snug on my foot. Stealing from God. As if I earned or deserved the blessing that I'm swimming in because of God's unmerited favor on me. 
Not a one of us are getting what we deserve if you're in Christ. And so our starting place is everything God gives me is a, is a from him and for him and for his glory. And I've been given the privilege of stewardship as a child of God, as a son or a daughter of God. Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor. So he does the thing where he does the negative, then positive, then why again? Doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Again, I don't know how you think of work. By the way, one of the most noble aspirations of work that I hear taught on often, and rightly so, is the dignity of work. God worked six days and rested. We're created in his image. There's a great dignity. Don't take that from someone else. Even if you didn't have to work, there's dignity to work. You're an image bearer putting on display the very image of God as you do work with your own hands to create and cultivate this earth and this world around you and the things in it for God's glory. That in itself is glorifying. And the dignity of providing for a family, to be able to provide for your children what a, what, a, what a responsibility, what a privilege, what a blessing that God has afforded somewhere to, for you to work honestly. That you're, now that's noble and that is good and that is godly to care for those that God has put under our care. But it doesn't end there. Do you notice what he appealed to? He said, and to share with those in need. There'll always be those in need among you. In the church of Jesus Christ, there's those in need. In your neighborhood, in this community, there's those in need. We just had a great missions moment from our friend Effie saying, we got those in need. Would you come alongside and help? Listen, uh, one of my favorite books of the Old Testament is Ruth. And God, you see God's heart for how this is meant to work. He says, if you've been bestowed the privilege of a field, and you're able to work. He said, glean only to the edges, but leave the edges. Leave the outer 10, 15%, so that those who don't have the privilege of a field can have the dignity of work and can have something for themselves. Don't hoard all the way to the edges. Find a way to steward what you've been given to bring dignity and blessing to others. The gospel compels us towards this. That's what God has done for us. That's what we do for others. One of the most uh, famous... And some people pick it apart and, and say negative things about it. But for me, it was uh, a real uh, turn the lights on sermon that I heard. It was given in Memphis, Tennessee 21 years ago, May of 2000, a passion conference held at Shelby Farms by John Piper. And he spoke. And uh, a little bit off the cuff, he tells the story, his notes blew away. It was super windy, Shelby Farms. And he, he literally stopped in his sermon and just prayed that God would give him some words to say because his nose blew away. It's crazy. And... Uh, and he started telling a story about some folks in his body um, and how well they'd stewarded their lives. Then he told a story about a couple that he had read about that had retired to the beach in Florida, and they had worked all these years, and they had made enough money to retire early. So in their 50s, they had retired. They were on the beach, and they were just yachting and collecting seashells. And, uh, and it was kind of put forth as, this could be your life if you you know, live wisely and invest well. And John Piper just said, and a little bit off the cuff, he said, please don't fall for the American dream. He says, God has something so much more glorious for you than acquire, 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 retire, luxury, death. He says, it's just, it's not, that's not what this says. This says there's dignity to laboring with your hands in an honest way so that you can impact others for good. 
That's the goal. This is not saying don't ever retire. It's not saying there's a place for retirement. Or reti- this isn't even saying there's anything uh, negative about the resources that you might have to steward. It's saying you've got a higher calling than just having phys- your physical needs met and even met in abundance. The dream would be that the longer the years that God gives you, the more wisdom you have, the more experience you have, the more truth you have, the more resources you have, so the more fruitful your life and ministry can be for Christ. Should God give you years 60 to 80, and especially if he gives you those years in quote-unquote retirement, by the grace of God, you have the means uh, to live well without continuing then you now have the opportunity at full-time vocational ministry. Wow. I'm not against a beach trip, by the way. I'm not trying to shame anyone that's trying to enjoy their... By the way, rekindling the flames with your wife in that season, good. Enjoying your children and your grandchildren and being still with them and playing games with them and prioritizing them, godly generational legacy of godliness. But don't lose your mission mentality later in life. Don't revert to a whore mentality. Great commission in those years, all time high. You likely, if you're in that season of early retirement, we don't have to work, you likely have more time and more resources right now in your life than you ever have. And there are hundreds of people groups out there that have never heard the gospel. May your fires be kindled for kingdom impact like they've never been kindled before. That you would labor so that those in need have physical, yes, and spiritual needs met. And then he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Golly, this is like just rabbit punch, rabbit punch, haymaker. All right, no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Wow, but only such as is good for building others up. As fits the occasion, it may give grace to those here. This is tough. Do you know, I'll just, I'll just give it to you that way. This is, he's about to kind of characterize and grab hold of all these corrupting talk. The word for that is sapros in the Greek. You know what it means? It means, or it's the word, it's the food word for mold. So here's what, here's what it is. If you look in the fridge this afternoon, I hope this is not your experience, but if you look in, and, uh, you know, your cheese is a little moldy. It's always a bad day, you know. And, um, or maybe it's your bread that's a little moldy. What, whatever it is, you, you notice something. I cut some broccoli up for some homemade pizzas the other night, and the broccoli was moldy. We ate it anyway. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> it was so gross. And, and, but there's an alarm that goes off when you find something moldy. You know what you immediately do? Oh, no, I, 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 if you have a basic understanding of how mold works, you know this problem could be pervasive because that mold is a disease that goes airborne. And it goes airborne, and it goes somewhere else, and it lights on some other food in your fridge. And slowly it diseases that fruit or that item, and guess what it does? It goes airborne again and finds another food, and it lights upon it and diseases it. And then it goes airborne and finds another and it lights upon it and diseases it. And guess what? Before you know it, your whole fridge is contaminated. Paul says, you know what corrupting talk in the church does? It's mold. It lights somewhere. It diseases someone. 
and then they become a carrier and they take it somewhere else and they light somewhere else and it diseases someone else and it keeps moving and moving. This is how slander and gossip work until the whole body is moldy, until it's all contaminated, until there's nothing godly about this group because we didn't watch the corrupting talk that comes out of our mouths. He says, what what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to speak that which builds others up. He's going to talk about this for the whole next 20 verses. That we're meant to be personal encouragers and edifiers and truth tellers. We speak the truth in in love when that's a joy to do, when it's difficult to do. But we don't let mold come out of our mouths and go airborne. And he says, 30, don't gr- do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. <coughs> uh, I'll just say this, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, what an incredible work the Holy Spirit uh, does in our lives. Grieving is, um, in the New Testament, we're told you can grieve the Spirit, you can quench the Spirit. Grieving is, is actively sinning, is doing what ought not to be done. Quenching is not doing what ought to be done. You understand the difference? So grieving, doing that which dishonors God, actively sinning, quenching, not doing that which could glorify God, bypassing the ministry opportunities, quenching that spirit's leading. Well, this says don't grieve. Don't do these things which offend God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. And the Spirit's where you feel that grief. That's where the godly sorrow that's meant to lead to repentance comes from in our life. The Holy Spirit, God chooses and the Son, Jesus, dies, uh, substitutionary atonement for our sin. He redeems. The Holy Spirit draws us, converts us, regenerates us, baptizes us into the body, fills us with God himself and gifts of the Spirit, seals us for the day of redemption, and sanctifies us as we cooperate with him towards the day we're glorified in the presence of God. What a ministry he has. The Spirit is called our helper, isn't that great to have a helper? Isn't that great that Je- Jesus literally said, it's better for me to go. How can that be? Because I'm going to give you my spirit to be alive in all of you so that I'm literally everywhere through him who is in you and he will be your helper. Paul says, you've never had a better gift than the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the spirit. I, I, you know, uh, I think about my mother, one of the sweetest ladies on earth, Nothing makes me sadder than when, when I offend my mother. It's just shameful. She's just a sweet little angelic presence that basically gives her life away to bless me and my sisters and her grandchildren and her neighbors. And she just kind of pours, she's like that little book I just read recently on my kids, The Giving Tree. Just you keep chopping it all off till there's nothing left. That's her. When I offend her, and I do, not because she's easily offensible, because I'm easily offenderable. When I do, I'm so convicted. How, how do I offend her? Like, how selfish, how rotten, how, how what do you got to do to, I mean, this is, and it's true. I'm ashamed. You ought to be ashamed of me. Even in her tenderness, in her compassion, in her generosity, in her selflessness, Even in all the good that she is, she's just a shadow of the Spirit's work in our life. 
in his ministry to us, in his goodness to us, in his mercy on us. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He's your best friend. He's your advocate, your refuge, your helper, your comforter, your sealer. Amen? We honor him. And then he goes on to say, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with malice. I did a word study on these words. I thought it was interesting. Bitterness is pecria, which means sharp. When something's sharp, when it offends you, when it pricks your flesh, then it leads to wrath, which is thumos, which is passion. I get heated. I get a little red in the face. I can feel myself beginning to dwell, and that turns to anger, which is orge, which is impulse. I now am susceptible to act impulsively in a way which would be divisive or harmful to you guys, those around me. Clamor, that's where it comes out. That means to shout. That's where I now take action in response to the impulse of the passion of my hurt, and it creates slander, blasphemy, I injure you. And at this point, malice, kakia, I am living in evil. There's just this staircase that goes right down that starts with bitterness and that leads to evil. And Paul says in conclusion, be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted. Be forgiving. Now he contrasts that downstairs list with this upstairs list that says, instead of that, the opposite, the counter would be kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness. If you want to know what you actively replace the bitterness, the slander, the clamor, the malice, and the, you replace it with kindness, you replace it with tenderness, that means compassion. By the way, you know what the word kindness is in Greek? Krestos. Pretty sure we're meant to understand that that's Christ. That's, that, if you want to see what kindness looks like in its purest form, it's Jesus. The word for tenderness is one of my favorite words. It's a play on splagnizomai, uh, which means our heart breaks for others. We're tender, we're compassionate, we can relate. And forgiving is the word for charity, where we get charity, that we would freely forgive even when we've been offended. Now, if that's what we're putting on, it's okay if I'm offended. You're human, I'm human, I offend, you offend. We've offended God, and yet look what he's done. Paul points to God and says, God in Christ forgave you. If God would send his only begotten son to us as the offenders of his character, to pay the price for the iniquity of our sin, that he might impute his righteousness on us, that he might become the curse, that we might become the righteousness of God. Could we let it go when offended by a brother or sister in Christ? Could we take a deep breath, not let that bitterness go to anger, go to slander, go to clamor, go to malice? Could we stop and say, in light of what God has done for me in Christ, I'm gonna be compassionate towards you who've offended me. I'm going to be forgiving to you who I'm upset with. Maybe rightly so. But I'm going to submit that to the Lord and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to deal with you kindly and in love. And we're not going to let this become divisive. We're not going to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You know what one of grieves the Holy Spirit of God? I mean, it says anything, anytime we act in a way in here that is against the unity of the body, Anytime our sin leads to division or divisiveness, it grieves the Holy Spirit. He longs to make us one as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. And he says, and I'll close here, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, the flesh and the devil and the world prick our impulses towards dishonesty, towards sinning in anger, towards stealing, towards corrupting talk, towards bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. And yet, that's not how God the Spirit is. That's not how God the Father is. That's not how God the Son is. You be imitators of God. Your children of God. Your life and the life of this body and this community is meant to give forth an aroma. And that aroma is not meant to be death. Hey, keep the tomb closed, Jesus. You don't want to let him out. He stinks. Jesus says, take off the grave clothes. I'm not, I can handle the smell When we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, that which stinks comes off. That which gives forth a fragrant aroma. It's pleasing to God. The community smells of Christ. That's what they're meant to experience with us. Uh, Some of you guys probably don't take me for a play guy, but I like a good play. I'm just going to go ahead and let that out. All right? I like that. Catherine and I like to see a good show. When some comes the Orpheum, we like to go down there and see it. Our favorite is uh, Victor Hugo's Les Mis. I don't care uh, how many times I've seen it. If it's in town, I'm going to see it. Something, man, it stirs me. It stirs my affections for Christ and the gospel when I watch Les Mis. Okay? A lot of people are laughing out there. I don't know what you're laughing at. I'm going to continue as if I'm not insecure. Okay? (laughs) It stirs my affections for Christ, no matter what you think of that. Uh, There's this character in there. Jean Valjean, love this dude. Uh, he committed a crime, even though it was somewhat of a noble crime, trying to help provide for his sister's kids who were starving. He stole, he was imprisoned, tried to escape various times. 19 years in prison. That's a long time, it's a lifetime. 19 years. Uh, gets out, um, he's frustrated, and then uh, uh, he, he turns back into the flesh when the fleshly impulses uh, cry out, and he steals from uh, a bishop who's kind to him, and he steals all the uh, expensive uh, candlesticks, and he's going to go and sell them, make a profit. He's turning back into the flesh, even though he's been set free. He hasn't been freed from that sin nature. And you're grimacing, and sure enough, they catch him in 19 years, and you're going, oh no, he's going back. They drag him to the bishop, and they're saying, we've got the guy who stole your stuff. And in this moment, this unexpected moment, has everybody seen this, right? I really don't want to ruin this. You need to plug your ears, plug your ears. But in this unexpected moment, Bishop Muriel of uh, Denier, he says, no, no, no. Those aren't stolen. I gave those to him. And Jean Valjean, why didn't you take the silver where I gave you as well? And Jean Valjean is going, What? And the officers are holding him and going, what? And everybody's stunned. And in a mind, it's just the most powerful effect of what grace does. 19 years of prison couldn't do what one moment of grace did. And it just washed over him. And he had to leave. He had to go struggle of what just happened. Why would he do that for me? I offended him. And it transformed him. He became this protagonist, which you love. He, he was so giving and forgiving. He began to, he was blessed to be a blessing. He embodied all that a New Testament Christian is meant to be. 
He took on a gal without a father and became an incredible father figure. He loved the lowly. He was a benefactor to a whole community. He redeemed everything he was a part of. And then one day, there was uh, his arch enemy, this officer who was always out to get him, Chavert. May have been a ruse, I think it was, but he says, hey, I know who you really are, or at least I thought I did, but now there's a man who we've caught who's, who's Jean Valjean. Sorry for mistaking your identity. And all of a sudden, they're going to try another man for escaping these criminal acts that were his criminal acts, and that man is not him. And even though he shouldn't necessarily be being tried, there's an innocent man about to get what he deserved. And Jean Valjean wrestles through the night. He's a benefactor of an entire town. He's got hundreds of people that work for him. He's the father figure of a, of a, of a gal that's uh, in the uh, flowering season of her life. And if he takes this real identity, he's going back to prison. And what does he do? And my favorite song of the whole thing, I will not sing it. He wrestles, and it's like he's just wrestling with the Lord, and he finishes with, I am Jean Valjean. And he goes before the court, and he says, I'm 24601. Which was, that was his identity as a slave. He says, I'll lay down my life, my freedom, because this man doesn't deserve it. So I'll, take his, I'll give everything I've been given for him. Now, that's stirring. And yet, it's only a, a bouquet thrown over the wall of what Christ has done for us. Jean Valjean was the guilty stepping in for the innocent, that the innocent wouldn't receive what the guilty deserved. Jesus, the innocent, stepping in for the guilty, that the guilty receive what the innocent deserves. Paul says, walk that out. Lord, I, I'd ask that we be a people consecrated to you for your purposes, that this community would receive an aroma. They would receive a, a fragrant scent of who you are from the way we live. And we will fail, but that we would aspire and endeavor towards the godliness of Christ, that you're the standard, that your spirit empowers us, that we constantly put off and we constantly put on, and we live a surrendered life because you're worth it that we would be compelled by the most glorious of all sources, the very essence of the gospel, that in Christ you forgave us. May we be imitators. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.